Welcome to the Love Fly podcast, Paul Tizard, Fear Flying Coach, and today's special guest is Andy Blackwell, who is an independent security and resilience consultant. Andy, do you know how long I've been waiting to get somebody with your calibre on to talk about security and stuff like that? I'm so grateful you can join me. So thank you and welcome. Absolute pleasure to be here, Paul, and I hope I can uh, allay any concerns that your your listeners may have about, about flying. For people just tuning in, might have thought, because people ask me about terrorism and all that stuff. We'll get into all of that. But just yeah. as sort of people know what they're getting, would you mind just giving us a kind of like a potted history of your background, how you got to be the man we know you ought to be now? <laughs> okay, well, I've got, uh, I'm old. I mean, I've got 46 years experience, I suppose, protecting people, organisations and their assets. And that's mainly sort of connected to transport. But if I take you back to my leaving school days and I, I joined Customs and Excise at Heathrow, I was on the sort of cargo control division. Right. And then I, I decided to switch camps. There was a lot of rivalry at the time between customs and, and police. I think that's a lot better now. But the sad fact of life was that police were getting a hell of a lot more money than uh, I was getting. So <laughs> I did. I was keen on joining the police and it wasn't solely for money, I can assure you. But uh, I joined British Transport Police. Nice. And at the time, the you know, interesting little force that they, um, they were quite small. They were under 3,000 in strength. And they had responsibility for policing all the sort of railway networks, harbours. Going back in their early history days, they were policing the canals. And it was a, a fascinating, it was the, where well, it is still the country's, it was the uh, a national public sort of police force, mm. although it's privately funded. And that attracted me because it was small and niche. Now, having joined that, I was very, very lucky. I um, went into the sort of CID side. That attracted me. I did two years in uniform, which you had to do then. Mm. And then I got to probably the biggest break in my career was a secondment to the National Drugs Intelligence Unit at New Scotland Yard, which was fantastic and I think helped me build a lot of contacts globally. Yes. That sort of got merged into the National Criminal Intelligence Service, which is now the National Crime Agency. Mm. And I did some time on their strategic and uh, well, strategic intelligence branch, which was absolutely fantastic. Got seconded to the Czech Republic. So I think my job, you know, being, I think, good in security is, is knowing a lot of people yes. and knowing yes. where to look. And I've, I've got global contacts that I can pick the phone up to and say, you know, what's actually happening? You know, you can read in the news about what, what you think is mm. happening, but being able to pick the phone up is, is useful. Now, after I did five years with the National Criminal Intelligence Service, after that, you had to return to your force. You couldn't stay. Nowadays, you can stay, and that's a, a lifelong career. And to be honest with you, I got so specialist in what I was doing, looking at sort of, you know, we were looking at the Russian sort of penetration of the UK, which is highly relevant now, of course. And yes. uh, who, would, who, who would have known at that time that it would, would bear so much fruit uh, as it is at the moment? And I decided then that I, I just didn't want to go back to BTP as much as I love that environment. Mm. And I'd always had a bit of a sort of thing for the commercial world and thought, I wonder, wonder what it's like working in the commercial world. And I got offered a job with DHL International, became their head of UK security, which was a fantastic, so grateful for 
a guy called Ricky Fiander, who was their director of security, that gave me that opportunity because mm. a lot of people don't want to recruit ex-policemen because they think the ex-cop is going to come into the organisation and run it like a police force. And I, I, I certainly am not that sort of... I'm not, I'm not ashamed of what I've done. I'm very proud of what I've done. Yes. But I, I, I didn't, I, I've never done my sort of private security stuff, run it like a police force. Mm. I think you need collaboration with the people and that works well. Now, I did, I did seven years with DHL, which was absolutely fantastic. Got involved in uh, a number of sort of major incidents with them, a lot of the sort of terrorist events in, in London at the time, probably way before many of your listeners were, were even born. But uh, like the Bishopsgate bomb, and obviously that was affecting some of our locations there. So at a very early stage, got involved in some very major incidents. But again, really good for you know, building knowledge, building experience sure, and things like that. Now, after seven years, I remember standing outside of the back of DHL thinking, I need to move on. As much as I like this job, I want to do something slightly different. And almost within 10 minutes, it was almost like fate. The phone rang. And it was a headhunter talking about a job for a, a UK airline. And I just guessed. I said, I'd always wanted to work for Richard Branson. And the guy said, how did you know it was for, for Virgin? I said, well, I've been in the intelligence world. Of course I know. Now, I had no idea. what It was a, it was a random <laughs> guess. Yeah. But it worked a treat. I got on with the recruiter. He got on with me. I had about three or four interviews for the Virgin. Now, it was a tough job to... Yeah, Virgin was tough to get into, but it was absolutely brilliant. And I spent 15 years there dealing with everything, really. I, I joined just after 9-11. Mm. So, obviously, the world had changed. Aviation had changed. Well, they wanted someone to sort of grasp the the nettle and uh, move things forward, which uh, which we did. But tough job. And obviously, you know, you know, the Virgin environment, great place to work, great culture. And one one point in there that I always find fascinating. I had a very small team in Virgin, and I can remember one one budget year when we were doing the budget planning. I said to my boss, "I need more people," and he said, "Andy, you have got the biggest team in the airline." I said, well, how's that? I've, I've got very limited numbers. He said, every single member of this airline works for you. And when I sort of broke that down, I thought, actually, this is the way around it. This is the way. It's, it's building on the tremendous culture that Virgin has or had and still has to get those people as my sort of deputy sheriffs, really, to go out there to look out for things. And I've, I've got some good stories, which I'll sort of run through in a minute about how how some of the staff actually helped excuse me that's so that's a very long sort of introduction no, to it's good i didn't know I there's a couple of bits i didn't know there that was really interesting to what i do and then after after i retired from virgin i thought well i can't having worked for virgin as you know you can't really retire you think you know you've been so hectic and busy in a nice way that i thought i still need to do something yes and now I do a lot of sort of private work. I do work with a company called ISAR that looks at sort of threat intelligence around the world, which is which is great. And I still keep my hand in. So I, I do think I get a very, very good overview now, certainly in, in my current role and the work I'm doing with ISAR of what's happening in the sector. Mm. And that I, I still like. I, I can't ever imagine sort of totally retiring. I suppose no. one day when I, when I get far too old <laughs> to get around or be credible, I'll have to go, but it's such a fascinating sector. Well, it's and the, the test is Andy. So if you you can keep going until you you send your your, your tongue comes out to meet your fork with the food on it. Once you do that, 
you've got to leave. That's just the rule. I've read it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll bear that in mind. I'll bear <laughs> that in mind, Paul. But I think I think people. I think the one thing I'd like to do to do well, a number of things I'd like to do today is sort of in, in, I suppose assure your listeners that mm. you know they they'll have read and heard a lot about aviation. Yes. And to say that it's still the same. Yes, it's it's troubling. It got absolutely devastated during the pandemic, like a lot of other sectors. But it is recovering, and parts of it are recovering really well. Mm. Yeah, the headlines, are, it's, it's like everything else, you know, don't believe everything you see in the newspapers. Yes. And I was going to, I suppose one question your listeners will want to know is, you know, is aviation still a target? You know, do are terrorists still interested in it? Yeah, because is that question, really, and is it safe? That's, you know, as long as we get yeah. that follow-up, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the day, terrorism or aviation will always be of interest to terrorists they've all they've got an unhealthy interest in it that said when you actually look at the sector and i'm proud to have been part of this and, and i'm sure you are as well it's heavily protected mm. so it's very very difficult for them to target it and of late you know if you've listened to the news over the last week or so the head of aq zawahiri was taken out in a u.s drone strike so since 9-11, slowly but surely, the leadership of IS, or much of it, and AQ have been the principal people that were targeting aviation, have been degraded. Now, that's not to say we should become complacent and say, oh, that's okay. But it is harder for them. For them to, to, to be able to conduct something like a 9-11 style attack now is incredibly unlikely. Mm. But what they could do is lower level type attacks using sort of lone actors. So they don't have the sort of structure that they had prior to 9-11. But that, that said, when you when you look at how, how is the industry protected, and I, I wrote down before before this call, I wrote down a few things to say, well, what have, what have we got that protects it? Why, why do we say it's the safest travel sector? And as, as I've always said, I think the riskiest part of aviation is the road trip to the airport. Yes. And when you look statistically, that's a fact. Aviation, and I've I've been involved, as I say, since the age of 16, and I'm still happy to jump on an aeroplane. And I've probably seen more and dealt, without being big-headed, seen more and dealt with more than most people have. Mm. But I'm more than happy to take my family on board. But let's let's just run through some of the things, why I think it's Yeah, safe. I think it'd be really interesting to understand that. I mean, I feel the same, but mm. it'd be interesting to unpick why, you, you know, seeing what you see know what you know you you still got such strong faith in it. that's going to be really helpful for people so thank you right well let's i think starting off something you know a lot about is the the safety and security culture mm. and i've worked with lots of other sectors i've never seen any other sector that has a safety and security culture as strong as aviation now, i think the security culture is a little bit behind the safety culture but it's it's getting there but we tend to have a workforce that is totally committed to safety and security. And it goes back to my boss's comments about, well, you've got the biggest team in the company. Mm. And at the time, I thought, well, he's just trying to stop me getting any more money out of the company. <laughs> but in reality, it was, it was a good thing to work on. Yes. And I had tremendous help from the staff at all levels, from the, from the captains, down to the front line to the receptionist, you know, at the headquarters building. And one one story that your listeners might be interested in is that, you know, we always used to, once a month, I would go and brief all the new 
well, the SEP instructors, if we could dive in on a class you of new recruits, then we would just, just have 15, 20 minutes, say, this is who we are, this is what we do, and we need you. You know, we need yeah. your help. We can't, we can't do it alone. Now, I can remember being at Heathrow, and we were liaising with the various policing agencies at Heathrow. They had US Customs and Border Protection staff that were based there, obviously monitoring people that were going over to the United States. And I was walking around with this guy. We were good friends, chewing the fat, really. And the phone rang, and it was our ops control. And they said, oh, we've had a call. Can you bring this member of cabin crew? She's in New York. She's a little bit concerned about something. Gave me the details and I, I rang her and she'd actually arrived in New York, uh, you know, flown out there, operated the flight, jumped in a taxi, was going downtown and she overheard a conversation that the taxi driver had on his mobile phone. And she, I know I'm not going uh, yeah. to protect the guilty, I'm not going to go into the details of that conversation, mm. but she was smart enough to, she was sitting in the back of the cab get the license plate details, the registration number that's displayed in the back. She had all that. She sort of remembered what had been said. She gave me all those details. And of course, I'm standing next to the guy from the US government who passed those details through to his through his agencies. And where that taxi driver lived was an area of concern to them in relation to terrorist activity. Now, it's not to say he was a a terrorist that was going to go out and blow up an aeroplane, mm. but it was useful intelligence. And I'll tell you what, Paul, the credibility that gave us and the airline and just repeating that story to other crew members, just saying, yes. look, this is what it produced. And I said to him, I can't tell you what's behind this, mm. but believe you me, it was valuable intelligence, not only to us, but to the people that deal with these things. And it's like everything else. From that point, you know, people people were calling in with, with good stuff. Mm, and it was just example. a case. Yeah, and it's just a case of people being vigilant. Yeah. I'm going to go off line a little bit in terms of, you know, it's not just, I always say the big three, three things. You know, how can people stay secure? Remain vigilant at all times. Now, I think where your listeners have an advantage if you're a nervous flyer, you're naturally situationally aware. And that for me is great because you will spot things, you will be hypersensitive to things that other people will be playing on their iPhone, probably won't notice. So you are my super spotters. If you're out there, you are likely to detect it prior to other people detecting it. And I'm saying, trust your in instincts. If yes. something doesn't feel right, mm. this, this works for me as I've got older. In my earlier days, I tended to ignore my instincts to my detriment. And then you think, why didn't I just go yes. with how I felt? Yeah. As I've got older and I like to think a little bit wiser, I tend to know if I get that gut feeling, I react to it straight away. Mm. No messing around. I don't challenge it. I think if that doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, then you know what? It probably isn't right. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you remain vigilant, report anything suspicious yes immediately you know don't wait or don't assume like some people do think oh someone else must have reported that mm. i mean we see so many events major events where you know some of these major terrorist attacks where people say oh yeah i, I was you know, i did see that guy come through and i didn't like the way he was acting but i didn't think you know i didn't they they, they don't like they feel awkward about reporting it 
Mm. And I think never ever if 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 you don't think something's right, yes. What's the worst that can can happen? It, it's it's just a full school. Someone 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 looks at it said no, thanks very much. It's not what you think it is. There's a valid reason why that that person's yeah. behaving that way. Yeah. Nothing lost. But I think the trouble now we we have so many terrorist cases that when you look back over the years, the missed opportunities to act. Manchester mm. Arena being the, and again. Because of the court proceedings pending on that, I don't want to go into too much detail. But there were there were significant missed opportunities there. But so the big three: <laughs> remain vigilant, immediately report anything suspicious, and strictly comply with the security arrangement. A lot of people say, "Oh, yeah, why do I have to do that?" I think if you comply with the the guidance and advice that's out there, you can't go far wrong. Mm. We might not agree with some of the stuff. But you say invariably behind the scenes, it's it's normally there for yes. a very good reason, and it's just that because we don't know what the reason is, we think, oh, that's a that's a bit of a hindrance. That's a bit of a. So, what sort of things would you say fall into that category? I think things like you know, like the liquids. Yes. Like you know, not going through the airport. And I know the the CEO of Heathrow the other day, and I don't know whether it's deflecting blame on his staff, but he was he he mentioned the number of sort of. Hours that are lost because of people aren't prepared when they come to the airports, and I think the U.S. were quite were quite good on this going back a few years. Mm. That they actually had lanes, you know, lanes for business travellers, so people that are used to passing through could go through very quickly. Yes, someone that's got loads of liquid bags full of makeup, they're going to have to go in the slow lane because they're going to have to divest themselves of all the of all these mm. things. Mm. But I think it's you know trust what you're being told. I think as the equipment. Security equipment develops and gets well, gets better. It's very good now, but it'll improve. And there's there's vast improvements being made in some of the detection equipment. Then I think a lot of these rules that we think, oh, this is why why do we have to? Why do I have to take my laptop out the bag? Yes. Well, the bottom line is, is because the the operator can't see it. It's, it's, he gets a much better view of it if it's out the bag. Mm. So if you're there and you want to try and you know trying to spot a bomb. Well then, perhaps we have to give him the best chance of doing it, yeah. albeit it might be a bit of a, a fuss to us to take it out. So it's, I think it's being a little bit more understanding sometimes, and I'm sure your your listeners don't behave in that way. But I've been at some security checkpoints where I think, oh, give the people give them a chance. You know, mm-hmm. they're trying to they're trying to, I suppose, guarantee your safety on that aircraft. Exactly. I mean, it can be a right pain when you're going through it, but it's. It's it's necessary, is it? And one of the things that people often don't quite get, and, and no, why should they, is the fact that you see the stuff which is obvious, the overt security, mm. but there's a whole bunch of things that go on behind the scenes that none of us ever know about. You'll you'll know about that, and obviously you can't tell us that. But maybe you could give people a sort of bit of a reassuring hint about how end to end the security is in terms of taking flights for example yeah the intelligence side is there's it's it's far more joined up than it ever was and i think certainly since 9 11. Mm. so there's a lot of intelligence sharing there's a lot of the um sort of passenger check-in information that's screened against watch lists and people you know may have various views about that but if you just look on the public twitter accounts of like gatwick police and heathrow to you look at the number of people that they arrest at airports that are passing through criminals. Now these aren't people that are going to target the airport. Yes. These are just naughty people that are making use of airline services. 
but you know they're getting rapists they're getting murderers so you think the system is working mm. so if mr if mr terrorist tries to jump on if he's not of course this is all provocated by you know do we know and quite often on the lower level ones of course these people aren't known the whole point of it you know they're not going to use someone that they know has got a criminal history and maybe on a on a watch list but it does it does screen out so it does identify a lot of bad people or people mm. that are wanted by the police so yes there's a lot of that sort of activity going behind there's other things there's um certainly at the U uk airports and and some of the airports in australia which is the, the risk analysis groups and that's people looking at the sort of risks pertaining to the airport and it's not just police and police and customs it's members of the airlines airports air traffic control staff it's a real wide range of stakeholders it's a it's a brilliant concept yes. and it works well in the uk and from what i know in uh, australia as well but it's almost like saying well rather you know security i could get pretty jaded in what i think of the security risks sometimes you get someone from outside of security that will ask you those difficult questions you think ah why didn't i think of that mm. and i think the whole concept of the risk you know the rags as we call them it used to be the multi-agency threat and risk assessment groups but i think it enables those sort of hearty discussions yes where there's no blame it's just like saying what do, what do we think of the real risk to this airport and we can be open and candid with each other rather than just saying well actually from a security perspective these are what i think the risks are yeah and i went i went to um one of these meetings doing some work in canada with a colleague and we had a guy there from the fuel farm and some of his insights i would have never have known i could never have known the detail that he had mm. so if i was trying to make an assessment on the risks to a fuel farm at an airport i'm not best place to do it but having the guy there that runs it that manages it and again yeah. he's not a security person he was the operational manager and i think mm. that that is where the strength lies and i think other areas you know we hear a lot about the protect legislation in the uk that's coming out following the manchester arena attack and i think a lot of the the work around that would benefit from getting people together let's not be too precious about oh it can only be security you know when i first joined was at the policing and security it was all if people weren't in that sort of community you wouldn't take any notice of them and that was that was a fact yes whereas now i think they've grown up a bit thinking actually a lot of the good knowledge is outside of us mm. a lot of the knowledge your your listeners will have will be of tremendous use a lot of the knowledge the cabin crew had you know she was there in the cab with the bloke yeah so we've got to we've got to be more open i think i think security in the past has suffered from oh we can't talk about it it's mm. secret we can't mm. tell you yes and that's an easy way to hide behind you know most things you can you can you might not be able to tell the operational details you don't you know you're not going to say well we're looking at this person this name person but you say the reason why we're doing this is because of this threat Mm. And likewise, the way when I got back to the cabin crew without compromising any operation, saying, you know, your information has been of use in connection with a terrorist investigation. End of. Yeah. And most people, you know, they don't come. I've never found them come back. Oh, well, yeah. Tell us, tell us the name. What, what, what terrorist group is that? But I think where we've been bad in the past is we haven't. When people have given information. We, we've just left it we've just taken the information we've been like this 
big black hole is a passing yes. well not really a black hole because we have passed it on mm. but i don't think we've been smart enough about going back to someone and saying thanks for that yeah. really useful can't tell you much more but brilliant really yeah. helped and i think we've got a i think we've got better at it but i think we that's an area that uh perhaps going forward we've got to be more consistently you know consistently mm. go back to people and thank them so they know it's they know it's worth it the other thing i was going to say paul around the policing of airports i don't know where where you live i i really not this is not a criticism of my former colleagues i don't see much in the way of visible policing what i will say is where i do see it is if i go to the airport yes i don't think i've ever been to an airport and not seen armed police you're absolutely right and i'm i'm one of these people i like seeing armed police to me it reassures mm. it doesn't it doesn't scare me and as I say, the the incident in Charles de Gaulle this morning, knifeman turns up on scene in a public area, waving a knife around. Armed police were on the scene incredibly quickly, mm. told him to put the knife down. He didn't, and he was neutralised on the spot. Tragic circumstances. We don't know the the situation behind it, but whilst you could argue, so well, that's that. That could scare people. That's scary. I'm not going to go near an airport. To me, it's it's the complete opposite. Yeah. It's saying, well, actually, we can't control people's actions. You know, we will have people out there, and some of it's mental health, some of it's obviously committed terrorist activity that will do bad things. Mm. To me, it's all about the response. How how do the authorities respond when it happens? Yes, and the speed at which they respond. And I've I've seen this at a number of airports, and the fact you've got police there. You know, we at our last call, Paul, we we joked, didn't we, about if you're going to have a heart attack, I'd want, you know, we'd want to have it at the airport. And I think if you have a security event (laughs) or a medical event, I think you've got a greater chance of getting help quickly if you're within the airport environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I think it's really reassuring. I'm yeah, I'm the same as you. I'm not bothered by, maybe because I was in the military at some point, and Mm. perhaps I don't. Guns don't worry me. Because I don't, you know, obviously if somebody, some crazy person was had one, that would be a different matter. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I always feel much safer once I'm in the airport environment, medically, physically, everything, you know, just yeah. because of, I, well, I know a little bit about what goes on, but it's just very reassuring. Yeah. And the land side area is probably the, the riskiest area. Mm. So it's like everything else. The, the, the quicker you can get through that and go through the security checkpoint, because in theory, and I know not, you know security is never a hundred percent, but in in you know majority of people, once you're airside, the chance of getting a gun airside is yes. is pretty remote. So you're really really safe once you're mm. through. You know, landside areas, a lot of them are like public areas, and lots of yeah. some of them have become like shopping malls. So that's that's where the risk lies, and it's interesting with the incident in Charles de Gaulle because that was a public accessible area. Yes, because obviously, you know, if he'd have tried to go through on the screening, he's going to get, he's going to get caught out on that. Yeah, because there was, but, a, um, I remember some people were quite upset I this years ago. So forgive me, you'll you'll know this better than me. But there was an incident at maybe Edinburgh or Glasgow. Someone tried to do something outside, like either ram the building. Yeah, drove the vehicle into the front. Yeah, yeah, the front. And entrance. a lot of people were like saying, "Well, it's not very safe." And I said, "Well, it's." 
you just think about it it's, it's not a soft target so what can you do if you're you're trying to get attention because that's what terrorists want to do is get mm. attention disrupt people's lives as you know what's the easy you know, that there's nothing stopping you doing that you could just you know you, you could do something like that because it's like i said it's a public access area but i know that once i'm inside the airport and i've gone through security and stuff yeah i'm i'm, I'm much more relaxed and hoping that people get a sense of that from just listening to you talk because of how much is in place yeah, and, and on the plane, you know, I look, and you'll know this better than I do about the training of the crew. And I remember Virgin's advert about, you know, they're not, not just serving tea and coffee, you know, they're trained in firefighting, they're trained in mm. medical, to, to, a, to a fairly high standard. Yeah. And the restraint training. Yes. And people often say to me, ah, oh, all the disruptive people that, uh, you know, we see in the news reports. Well, in the 15 years I was at Virgin, there was never a restraint that wasn't properly done. And I'm looking at some of the crews from the you know, Hong Kong crews who were tiny, you know, tiny people. And as I say, every single restraint, I think a lot of it is the training. You say, well, that how these people were trained obviously works. Yes. Because we never had a disruptive person. And we had some sort of serious situation, you know, people going you know, on, on you know, mixture of drink and drugs. But they were all restrained. We didn't have one that they said, oh, we couldn't, you know, we can't restrain them or whatever. So I think that says a lot about, you know, you have to have faith in those crew members. Yeah. And I think this this concept of, oh, well, they're just, they're there for our comfort and they're there for to serve the food. When you look at their the intensity of their training, I was always, I've always been impressed by mm. what they did and what they do, and yet people's perception of what they do. Yeah. Because I was often there when they were like the witnesses to major events, or they were they were first on scene at major events, or they, you know, resuscitated people. And you think they do a fantastic job, and they are, as my as my boss reminded me, they were certainly part of my team. Mm. And I invested a lot of time and energy into those people because the more we could, you know, they were interested in what was going on around the world. The more we could impart information to them about where the risks were. Yes. Again, it was equally beneficial to us that they could come, you know, they'd feed that back in. Mm. But if you shield every, if, if security becomes a big secret, it doesn't help anybody. No, you're right. And just to sort of a note here that when we're talking about crew, obviously, Andy and I have got the, the Virgin experience shared, but we're talking about crew. All crew are trained to the same standards. It's the difference in the training, as David Gott would say, is that it comes down to what the service is you know Sarah Fowler has been on a couple of times done the podcast you might know yeah. her as well and so you know talking about the true the training is the training you know that's a CAA or FAA regulated but it's the the customer service where it differs airline to airline so I think even you know people are quite worried about low-cost airlines for that reason whatever that means low-cost <laughs> well I, I won't I won't name I won't name the airline but I can say, I, I must admit, and, it, and it's perhaps a prejudiced view that I had the same concern. I remember going to a meeting in London of security managers and a low cost, an airline that uh, is a, so, you know, gets quite a lot of bad press about how they deal with these things. And I was totally impressed with the person that they said. And there was no difference between what they wanted and what I wanted. Mm. And I think it was my own prejudice that I'd, I think I'd, I'd fallen victim to some of the, the media hype on that. Yeah. But I thought, no, these people, and they were, you know, doing some of the security management systems, which is, I 
I haven't mentioned as yet, but it's uh, like a concept, it's quality assurance for security, for, for want mm. of a better word. Mm. Virgin were at the, on the pilot scheme for that. But on the working group, we had, we had certainly a person from a low cost airline and they were instrumental in, in, you know, helping us with that. So there's no, I don't think, I don't, I think you can ignore when someone says, oh, well, it's low cost. You know, there's no there's no seat belts on that one, or there's no fire suppressant on that one because they cut back is nonsense, really. As you say, yeah. there's a there's a good baseline, a very strong baseline, yeah. and I think people in their heart of hearts, as we said, one of the first statements I made was around, you know, the good safety and security culture. It's just something that people you can't you can't just make that happen overnight you know that's that's years and years i suppose of an industry that has in the past been targeted and people know that it needs it needs protection it needs special protection it gets protected more than any other industry you know when you mm. look around even yeah you know, i suppose the only one you could say is slightly different is nuclear you know if you look at how a nuclear yes. power station is protected that's slightly different but there's no other public transport system that has the protection that aviation has that's just gold that is Andy <laughs> I mean that is it isn't it yeah that's the th that's the thing if you didn't say anything else just saying that would be is that fact is just really helpful the, the interesting thing Paul we we all jump on the underground on trains where there's no screening whatsoever but we're, no. we're comfortable sitting there now well, we I weren't until wouldn't. you said that, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I would, I would hasten to add that that vigilance is as necessary there as it is within the aviation envi environment. Uh, and any of you, any of the listeners in the UK, the see it, say it, sorted campaign, mm. which British Transport Police and uh, Centre for the Protection of the National Infrastructure put in place. You know, at times I, I find it somewhat irritating, but it's good. It's good yeah. that it irritates me because it reminds me. Yeah, and I, I certainly in in the area I live, I cannot get on a train without hearing that at least once during the journey. That's true, and I think that's good. And I I know from colleagues from BTP, again they've had some blinding reports mm. come in from that where mm. people have seen things, and shouldn't that really just be how we behave anyway? Yeah, and it's interesting when you you mentioned September the eleventh, and terrible you know that changed aviation overnight as you know and continues to sort of be, those things are still in place but it's interesting when I often speculate like had that you know that it wasn't in people's psyche that that is something that could happen no. and I wonder if somebody was able to get through all the many measures that are in place now what would be different because I, I, I don't think so, for example, you know, back in the seventies, I remember like, yeah. host, you know, host, people trying to get up to take me to Cuba or take me this because yeah. you could get into the flight deck, and you know, that was a thing, wasn't it? Whereas that was then been dealt with, and I wonder now if something similar, even slightly similar, was to happen, how passenger behaviour would probably be different. What do you think? I I, I totally agree, and I I saw this after nine eleven, where people obviously prior to that would really want to get involved mm. unless you've got like the US Marine contingent or the local rugby club on board that wanted to help out <laughs> out the crew but now uh, since, certainly since 9-11 if someone starts going mad on a plane 
people step in. Yeah. The, the chances of, of, of someone trying to do that again mm. or being successful in doing that again, people aren't just going to sit there. And I'm not, I mean, that's no criticism of what happened no. during 9 11 or prior to it. But as you say, people know because they've seen what happened and what people are prepared to do. Mm. And I, I think, you know, again, without trying to scare your, your listeners, whilst I think it's unlikely, we have to have this heightened state of vigilance all the time. Yes. Because it takes one person to get through with one item. Now, the last couple of plots have been disrupted, again, through good detection and good intelligence. But we have to, I don't think we can become complacent. And if you, you know, if you said to me, the, what is the biggest risk? The biggest risk to me is people becoming complacent. And the sector's a little bit distracted at the moment because it, it's, you know, it's undermanned, it's trying to recover. And I think this is the time, and I, I say this to my colleagues in the airlines, and they, they do it, you know, that focus has to be kept on. Yeah. It will be very easy to say, oh, oh security's quietened down a bit now, it's all calmed down a bit. You know, we've, Americans have taken out head of AQ, you know, that things will settle down. Well, their, their replacement and their, their program, yeah, they'll have someone in place very, very quickly that is equally as deadly as he was. You know, the succession planning within terrorist groups is far better than in any other business organization. So again, if we do these three simple things, we can stay nice, safe and secure. Yeah, I think that's it. And it's like, you know, with the human factors trained in that since mm. the 80s, 70s and 80s, since that's been in, you know, we've had that 40 years now and how sophisticated that's become. But you, but you never see pilots who go, well, let's just skip the checklist. We don't need that. You know, <laughs> st- you know, they still do it. They still improve it. They still report. You know, it's this continual safety awareness that you see time and time and time again. And, and it sounds like it's very similar for security professionals as well. Yeah, what what's brilliant as well is a lot of the things that have come into aviation have suddenly you know, been used by, I read some reports about the NHS, you know, trying to get this just culture and concerns about, you know, if you make a mistake. What's What was great I found in the airline industry, and certainly within Virgin, the culture was such that you could put your hands up and say, you know what, I got that wrong. Yeah. And you were like almost held up as a local hero if you put your hands up to say about that. Where in other organisations I work for, if you'd have put your hands up to say it was me, you might have been out the door. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't have put your hands up. You would have no, saved and face, and that's yeah. all the stuff that they've. Because I was reading a book again. One of my favourite books is I've got it on the shelf behind me here. Is um, Matthew Said's book, The Black Box um, Thinking, and I love that. Yeah. It's just like that idea and it's not maybe one of the title that people would be nervous about I would really encourage nervous liars to read it because it's it's talking about the safety culture and no blame and all the things that have been learned and how they're trying to spread that into other industries so it's a fantastic book I've been I've been in organizations where they say yeah we have a we have a no blame culture and I, <laughs> it was a classic one where I'd gone to one of their their um risk meetings and they'd record an incident and a fairly senior person in the business said well well whose fault was that and i thought <laughs> you cannot have that you have to have yeah top management the leadership behind it because any scene any wavering of looking for a, for blame or a scapegoat is it goes out the window but i yeah, I think once you've been in Virgin, you're Virgin through and through. You know, it never leaves your blood. But I think Virgin got that right. That that um, mm. 
I can remember one incident with involving two pilots that they were hailed as heroes. You know, they actually said, yeah, we, we, we made a mistake. But by making that mistake, they can stop others making the same mistake. Yeah. And the company, I thought, did a brilliant job in saying, you know, instead of, oh, they're going to be suspended. It wasn't It wasn't that serious, but it was just great. You suddenly, and that was the time I saw that I think this, this culture is certainly moving in the right direction because yeah. people aren't scared to say they made a mistake. Yeah, we've had pilots on t- saying exactly that, that they, if they get on board and they say, do you know what, I'm not in the right frame of mind. I'm mm. standing myself down. There's no blame. There's no... You know, the, the only thing I've heard management say when that's reviewed, they say, what can we learn from this? Is that why, could that, you know, because that costs money to get another pilot yeah. out. Could we have learned, could we have averted that? But it's never been like, you know, who's this person? Why have they gone sick? It's, it's all, and it's just a shift that you just don't see in other. And I'd say, although I saw it in Virgin, I do see it. I've worked with other airlines. I've seen exactly yeah. the same culture, you know, exactly the same. I've seen it, I've seen it certainly across most of the airlines I've worked with some of the other some of the other businesses and organizations it's not as it's not as clear it's almost like well it's in a policy so if you get the <laughs> policy and procedure manual out or the strategy document it's all written there yeah but when it comes to it you think well actually you're not actually doing that no and your fine. your staff know you're not doing it yeah we, we we do have a no blame culture here but who the hell did it <laughs> And they say you only get one shot at that, don't you? Because the moment once that's happened, yeah, trying to rebuild that again, it's yeah. If you can, you know, it's once it becomes a thing, you know, you need a change of management. You need serious shifts once people have lost trust. That's it. So it's mm. so that's the thing I loved about every aviation business that I've gone near is just that that feel. You know, the people that got each other's backs and the, they don't try it. I don't know. It's just a different. It's just a different vibe to other businesses I've been in. You know, I went. I, I crossed so many different cultures. When I, you know, I've been in customs, which had its own culture, policing, generally. So you know, BTP because it was a quirky police force at that time. You know, or people thought it was. And then I was sort of seconded to the, this Met unit, and that had a different culture. Mm. But I can hand on heart say the best culture I've ever worked for was the Virgin one. Yeah, that's really nice. And that that takes a lot of, you know, to build that. And you look at how, I suppose, Branson, how he operates, you know. And I remember going to one of the one of those infamous parties at his, his home. He shook the hands of every single person. He was at his front door mm. or front gate for about six hours. Because I thought, he'll keep this up for about, you know, an hour. <laughs> six hours. Every yeah. person that came to that event, he personally welcomed yeah. and shook their hand, and yeah, I thought that takes that takes something. It does. So you know, he's, he's an extraordinary guy, and and I love that. There are some airlines which I think have that are very have got some great cultures as well. I've I've been particularly impressed with. I've done a few flights of Jet Two, and I've seen Southwest. And yeah. Some of those love. I love the way that they operate, and you just see the odd. And I think it is down to this sort of like the, the culture of aviation altogether, isn't it? But so bring it back to sort of security and stuff. Why shouldn't we be worried when we fly? I think, as I said earlier, Paul, the, the level of protection that you've got at these airports, you know, the most of the airports have, well, the, all the big airports have dedicated policing arrangements. 
Some even have their own police forces. There was, um, I think, one of the New York airports decided that it, it was going to have, and it's, it's just got legislation through, so it can have its own police force. And these people will be, you know, they'll be federal approved law enforcement mm. officers, mm. but they felt it's better if they controlled it, they can dictate where they go. I know India has its Central Industrial Security Force, CISF, that covers m most of their airports. There's, there were some discussions in their parliament a few months ago about why aren't they deployed to all airports, you know, because they're the specialists in policing. So in majority of these airports, you've got specialist police officers dedicated to those, yeah. to those areas. You've got the RAGs, you know, we've discussed the risk assessment groups. You've got the security management systems. So looking at security in a sort of holistic approach, not just, you know, it's not just security, it's the quality side of it and, and based on threat and risk. Yeah. And that's the key, you know, understanding threats and risks mm. and knowing the power of the mitigation you've got. And I think one other bugbear of mine is, is we must involve the frontline people because the frontline people have the knowledge. You know, we can have security quite often. I've been to places where, the, again, the manual says, well, this is what's being done. And you look on the, the shop floor and you think, well, that's, that's not actually been done that way. Yes. So I think where we where we perhaps can learn, I think and it's not just aviation sector, but is not to forget those on the front line. It's back to our cabin crews again. Mm. I spent a lot of time with the frontline people. I didn't I didn't deal with the top. I didn't I didn't manage the you know, where some people might say, Oh, I'll I'll deal with the board. I didn't. I swung it round the other way. I I thought I'll respond to the board. I will deal with the front line. And we started, we had a program where we had succumbents of cabin crew into our team. And people initially was up in arms, oh, what about the security? What if they leak information? What if they do this? And I think, well, one, we don't we don't give them access to anything that's sensitive or, or another agency's information, but they can come out with us on audits. And, and you know, majority, as I said before, most of what we dealt with wasn't secret. But what was fascinating there was things when we used to say, well, this is what we think, this is this is the procedure. And they go, no, that, that doesn't happen on board. We don't do that. And it's this security, I suppose, as imagined versus security as actually yeah. done. Yeah. And that, the insights from them, and I thought, I'll always, when I'm writing procedures or I want to change something, I'm going to speak to these people, I'm going to get them involved because they're yeah. actually doing the job. That's right. And I think far too often it's the security manager writes the procedure. Well, that's fine, he can write the end procedure, but you've got to consult with the people. Yeah, yeah. The power of this, as I say, the RAG group, having those key stakeholders in place, mm. not just security, not this dark, you know, dark art of security that we can hide behind our secrets. They say, no, let's let's involve everyone, let's see where the real risks are. Yeah. And it works. It really you know, I won't mention it, I've been to some airports and it's so proud of that concept it's just so great being amongst it because mm. it's so healthy and you think they'll get it they, you know, these people get it and they work with it and it's you know whereas before it was just security doing it and, and when you involve the other stakeholders you've actually got because they've had an involvement in it you get their buy-in as well whereas if i just write a procedure and it's oh it's head of security's put this out and it's oh him again you know <laughs> file it away yeah no, you're right. It is that, and not even I've been the front line, and uh, 
I do remember doing certain stuff and we just did it you know you didn't there were certain security things we did if we took over an aircraft mm. we'd, we'd meet the security had been looking after it if it was at a you know a remote stand then we'd do a search and then yeah. you know, all this sort of stuff and we did that it's not because someone told us it's because well it's our aircraft you know we're not yeah. we, we want to be safe as well so you, you're always thinking about that sort of stuff it's just it gets drilled into you and you, you just do it you know it's not like oh yeah, can't be bothered. It's because it's your own lives, you know. We're get we're on that aircraft as well, and so you want it to be safe. And so yeah, I love I love. And what I really enjoyed about your talk, Andy, is that it's getting this picture, this idea of sort of like this global stuff going on, and mm. all these different players doing their thing, you know, to make us safe. Just love all that. I think we see the point most travellers see is you probably see the bit you you hate, which is the divesting all your <laughs> your articles <laughs> and all you just you just want to get airside and have a drink or have something to eat or buy duty free or something but behind all that as you say you've got this, this intelligence layers that are going behind you've got some of the covert you know project servitor at the airports you know overt and covert policing mm. provides deterrence and reassurance there's lots of things going on the behavioral detection you know a lot of lot of um airlines train their staff in behavioural detection techniques. Some actually have sort of uniform security personnel that are trained out there to spot the sign, you know, to spot suspicious signs, really. Mm. But I would extend that and say, actually, we can all do we can all do that. I'm not saying mm. we're all going to be highly trained behavioural detection, but I think most of us are pretty good at picking up, and certainly nervous flyers will be pretty good at picking up things that look a bit odd. Yes. And I think we should use that as... Michael Caine once said, "Use the difficulty." That's right. <laughs> and if people see that as a difficulty, I don't. I see it as an asset. I think actually, yeah. or being a little bit sensitive to things. Mm. That's. I want people to be like that. I spent half my, well, nearly all my life trying to get people to to yeah. be sensitive to things or a little bit hypersensitive. Well, there you go, nervous flyers. But you, yeah. there's an, there's a serious advantage to being a nervous flyer. In fact, Andy would prefer it you stay a nervous flyer and don't get over your fear of flying. <laughs> I think the reality is that once someone's had that sensitivity, and you're right, the situational awareness, sometimes it's too much. You know, you're, you're looking yeah. at everything. But once they lose the fear element, you don't lose that kind of appreciation of the environment you're in and you're looking around. And, you know, so I, th I think you're right. That's it. It does. That's it. It's an advantage rather than someone just sat on their iPad. Yeah. So I've recruited a few more members. You now, have, yeah, I? that's right. <laughs> to my <laughs> to my security family. You, there'll be nervous flyers listening to this going, saying to their partners, I bloody told you it's, it, it's, it's, there's a benefit to being a nervous flyer, you know, so, but let's just sort of dial it down a bit. You don't have to be on duty, you know, because a lot of nervous flyers are on duty, like making sure that the pilots and the cabin crew do their jobs. But they, you know, you, you don't have to also be part of Andy Blackwell's team. So you have permission to just <laughs> dial it down a bit, you know. But Andy, that's I think I think as well is that the point I made, Paul, just to support what you're saying there, is to trust the people that are doing the job. You know, trust the. I used to sometimes smile when people would say, you know, they come on to you, be dealing with a major event. And they go, "Have you thought of this? And have you done that?" You think, well, be polite. That's my job. Of course, of course, mm. I'm liaising with all these, you know, all these external agencies. You know, there's a good there's a good setup yeah. in aviation. I think you look at the number of jobs where, yes, some plots have been successful, but there's a lot that haven't been have been taken out in the fairly early stages. So you say, well, how's that happened then? 
Yes. How's that suddenly, you know, so if you think a little bit behind the scenes, and on the bigger picture, obviously, and people got different views on the, the use of, of drones, but, you know, the the Americans have been pretty successful at, at dis disabling or, or dismembering AQ and, and, and IS. Not to say that, you know, it, it won't start to spring up again. It's not going to go away, but uh, they've degraded it, which yeah. gives us the upper hand for a while. Andy Blackwell, brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity and uh, happy to dive in whenever if you want me back in six months or something to... Oh, that'd be amazing, actually, yeah. So if you then give us a shout. Thank you. Pleasure.